Good morning. Our gospel reading concludes this morning with John chapter 11, verses 28 through 45. When she had said this, that is Mary, uh, Martha, excuse me, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she had heard it, Mary got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her were also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. So Jesus began to weep. The Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So many of you know that my mother... Jean Pelkey, who's been living with uh, Heidi and me for the last three years, passed away on Thursday. And I just want to thank those of you who had a chance to get to know her. Um, Probably not so much at this service, but maybe if you were in the um, adult Sunday school that she attended for the better part of two years, um, knew her and got to know her. And she loved being here and meeting people. Um, What you might not know is that... um, In the 1960s, when my mother was in her late 20s, she pastored several Nazarene churches um, in New York and in Kansas, and uh, kind of a pioneer figure doing that sort of work as a woman. Um, My father, in retirement, also became a United Methodist minister, went to seminary in his 50s, and then pastored three churches for about a decade. And so I'm very much feeling the legacy of my parents this morning as I stand here before you, and I'm grateful for for God's faithfulness in their lives and their faithfulness to their Lord and to his church. And I'm very tempted to talk about Jesus and God weeping for us 
What a powerful uh, moment in Scripture. The NIV is even crisper and shorter. It simply says, Jesus wept. Uh, and it reminds me of the 1980s when I was a high school student at a Christian school where my mother taught in Syracuse, New York. And I don't know why, but in some chapel one week, there was an invitation for students to share their favorite passages of Scripture, and some smart-alecky senior stood up and said, Jesus wept! And of course, he thought that was a great joke. But, um, you know, what a powerful word from the Scriptures about how God feels with us and walks with us on these journeys. I'm certainly grateful that Christ has been walking with me on my journey the last year. But I'm not going to speak about Jesus weeping. Instead, I'm going to be talking about Thomas and Martha, two of my favorite characters in the New Testament. So we're deep into Lent now, well on our way to Palm Sunday and Holy Week and the promise of Easter morning. Our gospel readings for the past few weeks have all been from John's gospel, and they've all focused on people encountering Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of Man. The blind have received sight. Samaritans have been offered living water and new understanding. Religious leaders like Nicodemus have been challenged to rethink cherished ideas. Other chapters that we haven't read as a congregation include chapter 2, in which Jesus performs his first miracle when he changes water into wine, and chapter 6, in which he miraculously feeds 5,000 people. Despite these amazing signs, people still doubted him. Even his own disciples seem unable to understand him. And now we've reached chapter 11, and Jesus raises his beloved friend Lazarus from the dead. This is a pivotal chapter in John's gospel. It anticipates the resurrection of our Lord in chapter 20, and it offers one of the clearest self-testimonies from Jesus about his authority over death itself. But it also marks Christ's final public miracle before John's gospel turns to the triumphant entry into Jerusalem and the extended teachings of, John, of Jesus that form the bulk of John's peculiarly long Last Supper narrative. And chapter 11 continues the trend that people keep asking the wrong questions or missing the significance of what's going on around them. But this is one of John's central themes for his entire gospel, because all the way back in chapter 1, verse 10, we read, He was in the world... Yet the world did not know him. And so this has been playing out over and over and over in these narratives of encountering of Jesus. The Lazarus narrative unfolds in three sections, with the first and third sections focusing on Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and their relationship with Jesus, and the inner section briefly focusing on the disciples, including Thomas in particular. Each of those parts offers us a portrait of people interacting with Jesus, but also evidence that something is still not right in this communication between the divine and the human. So let's start with Martha. She's one of my favorite figures in the New Testament. In Luke's gospel, we're offered the famous story of Jesus visiting the home of Mary and Martha. You may recall that Martha busies herself with the tasks of a good hostess, especially one who's hosting a visitor like Jesus, 
Like, what would you be doing if Jesus was coming to your house? I'd be vacuuming for sure and maybe cleaning up the dishes out of the sink. And Martha was doing something like that. But Mary was sitting at Christ's feet listening to his teaching. And understandably, Martha was irritated that she wasn't getting any help. And I always felt bad as a kid for Martha being scolded for doing her chores because I was one of those kids who actually tried to do the chores that my mother asked me to do. And that seems so unfair. But here in John's Gospel, Martha is the one who emerges as a powerful woman of faith. The story begins with illness. Lazarus is sick, and Mary and Martha are worried enough about his well-being that we read in verse 3, that they send word to Jesus. They clearly have faith in him and his ability to heal their brother, but their words also reveal an implicit fear that maybe Jesus may not come. Now think about that. They believe he could heal, but maybe they don't think he's going to come because they say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Not your friend, Not your buddy, not your pal, not the guy you go fishing with or whatever they did for fun. Lazarus, whom you love, is ill. Maybe the sisters had seen enough of the mysterious ways of Jesus to wonder, will he actually show up? Will he have other purposes and other responsibilities? And you know what? They're right to worry because Jesus knowingly stayed where he was for two more days. And during that time, Lazarus, his beloved friend, died. Note this language of John. Though Jesus loved them, he stayed two days longer. Though Jesus loved him. I, you know, I love that. John builds that right into his narrative too. John's aware of that too. Like, what were you expecting? You're expecting him to put everything aside and get there. So we're clearly meant to recognize that Jesus' decision violates our human sense of common sense and our common sense understanding of love and friendship and mercy. So we fast forward to verse 17 now, and Jesus finally shows up in Bethany, and his best friend has already been dead for four days. And Martha's, it's Martha's turn now to come to Jesus while Mary stays behind. At first, Martha chides him, and Mary chides him the same exact way a few verses later. Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. Yet she confesses in verse 22 that she knows God will give Jesus whatever he asks. Now, it's again challenging to wonder, what's Martha expecting? Because in the dialogue that follows, it's not clear that she has really a clear understanding of what Jesus is about to do. It sounds like she might hope that Jesus will raise her brother from the dead. But when Jesus says that's exactly what he's about to do in verse 23, your brother will rise again, Martha misinterprets his words and confesses her belief in the general resurrection of the dead at the end of time. And Jesus immediately offers a corrective. No, I am the resurrection and the life. And moved by this expression of his power and authority, Martha confesses most clearly her personal faith in Jesus. She addresses him as Lord, as Messiah, and as the Son of God coming into the world. 
thus echoing John's words in chapter 1, verse 9, that the true light has come into the world. Now let's take stock of this powerful moment. In her own words, Martha is acknowledging that Jesus, this man standing before her, is the Messiah. And she's acknowledging that this Messiah is the Son of God. And in some way, indeed, that this Jesus, this Son of God, this Messiah, is the Lord Yahweh. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, Martha is offering a spirit-filled confession of the Lordship of Christ, the divinity of Christ, the Godhood of Christ. She has seen and heard and felt enough in her, in her soul to know exactly who he is. And this is where we're called to be, at the point of absolute confidence in the nature and character of Jesus as Lord. And I ask you in this moment of Lent, a week from Palm Sunday, are you there in that place of absolute confidence in the nature and character of Christ? I ask myself that. Am I there? Because whether in Lent or some other season of life, when the real world troubles buffet us, I know I doubt that Jesus holds sway over all of life and all of death. And there's reason to doubt that we stay in that place of confidence because in verse 39, Martha herself, who has just testified to the divinity of Christ, questions his next move because Jesus orders that stone to be pulled away. And what does Martha refer to? The stench of death that's going to waft out over all of them. How do we square that with her testimony a moment before that Christ is the God of the universe who holds death and life in his hands? She doesn't seem to yet understand the full implication of his power his authority, his will. But Jesus is clear. He intends his actions in the next few moments to be a sign to demonstrate that very authority and identity because he wants it to inspire belief. Why is it so hard for Martha to stay in that place of absolute faith? Why is it so hard for me to stay in that place of absolute faith? Why is it so hard for you to stay in that place of absolute faith? Let's turn to Thomas, another of my favorite New Testament characters. As a teenager, I loved the skeptical Thomas who would not believe in the resurrection until Jesus showed up and revealed the marks in his hands of the crucifixion. But here in John 11, Thomas is the only disciple referred to by name and the only one given a single line of dialogue all of his own. Sadly, his one line points to his profound lack of understanding of what's going on. The disciples don't actually show up in the chapter until after Jesus has received word that Lazarus is ill and after he decides to stay for two more days. He doesn't consult with them. He doesn't ask their opinion. He simply decides he's going to stay two more days. And then in verses 7 and 8, he finally says, 
what he's going to do. Let's head back to Judea. Now, his responsible disciples remind him that the religious leaders want to stone him to death because he's been healing on the Sabbath and he's been equating his power and authority with that of God. That's heresy, that's blasphemy, that deserves death. So it makes sense that they want to stay away from the heart of the Jewish homeland. But Jesus replies with some cryptic comment about those walking in the light of day do not stumble. In the broader language of John's gospel, and in the light of his epistles, we might understand that little verse to mean something like, those who are walking in God's love and will have nothing to fear. But this must, this must not have satisfied them, because in verse 11, we read that, they told, that he had to tell them his reasons. Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. Now, the disciples have been with Jesus as he's preached about living water and being the bread of life, as he's claimed to be the light of the world, and yet they take him at face value and they think that he means Lazarus has gone to sleep. It's like, what have they been listening to for the last three years? So in verse 14, Jesus has to finally say, no, Lazarus is dead and I'm going I'm to get him up. That's when Thomas gets this special line of dialogue, which has absolutely nothing to do with what Jesus just said. Well, let's go along and we'll die with him. So the Lord of the universe has just said, I'm going to raise this guy from the dead. And Thomas says, well, let's be obedient and go die. Thomas has every reason to believe that they're walking to their doom. Jesus has been having increasingly hostile encounters with religious authorities. In chapter 5, when he healed the paralyzed man. He did so on the Sabbath, and that got him into all kinds of trouble. In chapter 7, he'd been preaching in the temple, and this offended the religious authorities, and they sent officers to arrest him. And then last week in the sermon from John chapter 9, we hear about the healing of the blind man and the, the repeated attempt by the Jewish council to understand who had done what and why. And just now at the end of chapter 10, which we've not read this morning, they actually tried to stone him. So from a human point of view, Thomas has every reason to believe that Jesus' life is at risk. And so I guess we should admire him for his willingness to go with Jesus to Jerusalem, even if it means their death. There's been a call on Thomas's life, and he's willing to obediently follow it. But Jesus wants so much more than our obedience. He's seeking our love and our absolute confidence in him. Why can't Thomas put two and two together? Jesus had already given a man born blind his sight, which in John's narrative we're told was an extraordinary thing that had never happened before. And Jesus had fed 5,000 people just a few chapters earlier. Jesus clearly, in John's gospel, can manipulate time and space and matter and energy and pour grace in an abundant amount into every situation. So if Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, and he also says, but I'm going to raise him from the dead, why is Thomas so limited in his response? All he can imagine is that he'll be faithful enough to Jesus that he will follow him to his own death in Jerusalem. Thomas can't even muster enough faith to articulate a wish that maybe something more helpful, hopeful might happen, like, well, maybe at least Jesus will escape them again like he did a few days earlier. 
Why in the world is it so hard for Thomas to imagine a bold and powerful Savior who's in control? Why is it so hard for me to imagine a bold and powerful Savior who's in control? I am as bad as Thomas. I'm great at being obedient, but I am so less capable of letting Christ be Lord. During the past two years, God's been waking me up from a sleep. Much of that has been due to the journey that Heidi and I were walking on while she was dying from cancer, and I was pouring myself out in prayer for her healing and seeking wisdom and strength to manage her health care and my sanity. But it's also been fueled by starting seminary after putting off that decision for three decades. It would be really easy for me to take credit for this awakening and to assert that it was all about my choice and that it reflects a willful, intentional reshaping of my life on my part. But that would be self-delusion. And from the studying I've been doing of Isaiah, it suggests to me that that would be idolatrous to think that I am the one who's somehow waking myself up. I want to consider Martha's confession one more time. When she notes that she believes Lazarus will rise in the resurrection on the last day, she may have been thinking of Old Testament passages like Isaiah 25, 6-7, where the prophet says that Yahweh himself will swallow up death in a feast at the end of the universe. Or Isaiah 26, 19, where the prophet says, your dead shall live, their corpses will rise. Or she may have been thinking about Ezekiel 17, 1 through 14, the famous passage about the prophet in the valley of the dry bones. The Ezekiel passage was another one of our possible lectionary readings for today. So let's very briefly consider what it tells us about the nature and the source of spiritual renewal. Because I need to be reminded about that because I think it says a lot about why I can't stay in that place of absolute confidence that Martha seems to slip away from too. First, the passage begins by reminding us that it is the hand of God that's in control of the entire process. Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. So God initiates these stories of renewal. From the very start, it's the Holy Spirit who's in control of the situation. Not you, not me, not our will, but his. Next, the Lord tells Ezekiel to preach the word of the Lord to this valley of dry bones. O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so Ezekiel prophesies as commanded, and the bones rattle, and they come together and the sinews start reforming, and the skin grows back, and the corpses are enfleshed, and they rise on their feet full of breath, a vast multitude, as the scripture says. And these are not the half-rotted zombies of Hollywood. These are fully restored living human beings. But still God's not done, because he tells Ezekiel to preach one more time, and he says, 
O my people, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you on your own soil, and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act. And here is the very heart of the meaning of this passage, that the Lord will work wonders, restore that which is dried up and dead, place his spirit in us so that he can be known to the whole world. Through his own actions, Ezekiel models absolute obedience for us. But the prophet also clarifies the nature and source of renewal. It is the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's purpose to be known to all the world. There is no renewal or restoration without the Spirit of God. Human effort will fail to put sinews and flesh back on the dry bones of our lives. Only God can restore us and raise the dead. But Ezekiel also calls us to hear the word of the Lord. Only by listening and hearing can we be primed to obey and have faith, faith that's so absolute that we can truly trust that God is absolutely in control. Thomas was there with Jesus, and he was willing to be obedient, but somehow he wasn't quite listening, and he was really not understanding. And Martha was there with Jesus, confessing her faith in her Lord, yet she too seemed to experience a disconnect from Christ's words. But Lazarus, dead Lazarus, heard Jesus' words of power and authority, and he lived. May it be so with us in these final days of Lent, as the Holy Spirit opens our ears and our hearts and our minds and calls us to a rich life of absolute trust and assurance in Jesus Christ as our Lord. Amen.